Thank you so much for the privilege of um, getting to preach here today. Um, I'm really excited to be here in um, my home church with this family and um, getting to speak to all of you. Um, as my dad said, I am Steve Rasmussen. He is he, my father. I'm Hannah Rasmussen. <laughs> wow, I'm starting off really well. Um, I, I, as my father, Steve Rasmussen, I'm Hannah. I was born here. We've been in this church a long time, um, and in and out, and um, I went to McAllister College partially because this church was close by, um, and now I live in Kenya. I'm pursuing my Master's uh, of Divinity, and I'm working as an editor um, with Oasis International. We published the Africa Study Bible, and now I am helping African authors write Christian books. So then I would want to ask, who are you? Um, maybe you say that um, I'm a lawyer, I'm a pastor, I'm a barista. Um, that's what your usual response would be in our culture. Uh, what do you do for a living? Um, that's kind of this work hard, play hard culture that we live in. Um, but this can become all we are. Uh, putting your identity in your work is risky because what if you get laid off or your health doesn't allow you to uh, keep that job, or you retire. Uh, maybe this is why unemployment often puts men at risk for depression, even if they haven't tended to get depressed before. Maybe another um, place. Uh, employment. That's one place we can put our identity. Another place we can put it is in position or popularity can be a little bit of a variant on, on that idea of uh, employment. Maybe your credentials. Some people only respond if you call them colonel or professor or bishop, apostle, reverend. Uh, other people get their identity from being famous and well-liked. Um, in a culture of celebrity, uh, maybe we want to have lots of likes and followers on social media or be popular in school. Um, another, and this is also pretty fickle. Uh, it, it can go up one day and down the next. You can have your five minutes of fame. Um, you can be the expert in the field, and the next day someone else comes up and disproves your idea. Um, it, it's, it's pretty shifty as well. Another place we can get our identity is in our relationships. Um, women often spend a lot of time caring for their families and can even end up measuring themselves by that. Um, like, or... Or um, if you're not in a f caring for a family yet, maybe you measure yourself by whether or not you're in a relationship. Um, how big is that diamond on her finger? And, you know, or being a mother. Um, mothering is good, but when it's your identity, you can actually end up not being as good of a mother because uh, maybe you take their performance in school personally. Um, or, or if they forget something at home, you, you rush to bring it to them instead of them actually learning how to take care of themselves and plan ahead. And you don't let them, you know, experience those consequences because you want to look like a good mother. Um, or uh, we can end up idolizing marriage and family and leave people out who don't fit that mold. Um, of course, there are other relationships that we can base our identity on too, like friendships or um, relationships to powerful people or whatever it is. And relationships can change um, and, and they can actually be lost as well, and, and so it's dangerous to put our primary identity in our relationships. 
Another place we can get our identity is ideological groups we belong to. In Kenya, people can tell from your last name what your tribe is and therefore what your political affiliation is likely to be. And as you can imagine, this emphasis on tribe creates a lot of ethnic division in the country. Um, we had a very tense election last year, and everyone is wondering if there was going to be an outbreak of conflict. And I'm afraid that in America, um, people are putting more and more of their identity in their political party. Um, and the result is that no one is willing to compromise or work together for the greater good, because otherwise they're seen as giving in to the other side. Um, not that a political party or a tribe is bad in itself, um, but if it becomes your primary thing, it can be dangerous not just for you, but for the country. Um, and in our uh, consumer culture, we often also identify with the things that we like or buy. Star Trek fans call themselves Trekkies. Uh, I think being a Packers fan is a whole lifestyle. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not going to say whether, whether a Vikings fan is or not. Uh, we won't. <laughs> um, but we walk around with brand names on our backs and stickers on our laptops and our cars. And it's not free advertising. It's expressing myself, right? Um, now, this is also a little bit more sensitive. But what we like in a deeper way can also become our identity. So like who we're romantically attracted to. And our culture can tell us that you must express yourself if this is who you are. And I felt this pressure at McAllister that if you're a heterosexual woman who wants to be in a relationship, you should be expressing those identity and those desires by dating and hooking up with men because otherwise you're repressing who you are. Um, but I think it's dangerous to identify ourselves primarily by what we want because it puts the focus on my desires and some desires are for good things or, or for neutral things. But we can end up idolizing these objects of our desire if we make them a big marker of our identity. Um, and sometimes our desires aren't for good things or they're selfish or even sinful. Um, and the heart, according to Jeremiah 17.9, is deceitful above all things. And so that's why we need to learn to train our hearts to love God with all of our hearts so we will love the right things. Um, so, um, I'm not saying that everything we want or desire is wrong, but just to put our whole identity there can be, um, we need to just think about that. Um, and another one, um, can be our demographic, um, especially if you're part of a minority, um, racially, culturally, or gender, whatever, you often have a different and unfair experience. Um, and so you end up bonding with other people who understand you. And you end up advocating together for change. And that's really good. Um, but when it becomes your only identity, you're at risk of impeding the very change you want to bring about. On the TV show Seinfeld, there's a Jewish uncle, Leo, who believes that even the chef who burns his food is anti-Semitic. Um, he sees himself so thoroughly as a Jewish man that he can't imagine anyone else seeing him differently. And he has um, internalized... Um, his negative experiences to the point of becoming bitter and seeing everything through the eyes of a victim. Um, and if your identity becomes being the victim, um, as opposed to whatever it is that's good about your minority or, or, or so on, you actually can't cast a vision for the hopeful future that's needed. People who disagree with you aren't just people who need to be educated 
or ignored, but they're the focus and they're the enemy and they actually get more power over you. Um, and the same thing can happen on the other side um, when uh, someone advocates for their group to be treated better and you're not part of that demographic, maybe you're a majority group member, and that's where your identity is. And suddenly you feel threatened and consumed by fear um, because you've put your primary identity in something that is defining you as not those people. Now, okay, I'm painting a picture of the extremes of what happens when we identify completely with any one of these identities. Hopefully you haven't gone that far yet. Um, and it's not wrong to identify with being a mother or a doctor or a pastor or a Republican or a Democrat or a Vikings fan or a Doctor Who fan or a woman or a person of color or a white person or a citizen of your country. I mean, so many of these identities are actually gifts from God, uh, such as the talents, education, um, job we have, family, relationships that we have. Um, so many of these identities re reflect the good and beautiful diversity of who God has created us to be and what we each appreciate about his world. But what I am saying is that in our culture today, there's a lot of pressure for us to put our main identity somewhere that will ultimately fail us. And these good identities can get warped into our whole self-image, which they were never meant to be. Um, so our sense of self becomes so fragile that we can't really love each other and work together because we're insecure. Um, we try to make people give us that affirmation and that self-esteem boost that we need because we built our houses on sinking sand. Um, and it's not just that we individually seem to be building our sense of self on a shaky foundation. It seems like in the U.S. and the world recently, there have been a lot of competing conversations about different identities. I think it's good that we're raising awareness, um, but I think it's, it's getting a feeling of identity crisis. And I would almost say that we're in an era of identity crisis. Um, and everyone is saying, you need to hear my identity. You need to understand my experience. And those are good things. Um, but, but how do we enter into that conversation? Um, for the sake of ourselves, but also for the fake, sake of our whole society, the fabric of our whole society, we need an identity that brings us together. Um, and as Christians, we need to have better news uh, than the news on TV. We need to have a good news for this world. And we need um, to, I believe, part of that good news, that gospel, is bringing people back to who they really are. Um, from the world's perspective, um, Christians seem to focus too much on the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots of what people should do. And it's not very motivating a lot of the time, um, to start there at least. Um, and our Society is moving in a more postmodern direction, and the focus there is on individual identities and saying that everyone's story is right and we just need to respect each other. Um, but I, I think that um, in such a diverse society, this generation is really hungry for a story that makes sense of who they are and who we are together, and that will inspire them to live a transformed life. Um, and according to the Christian ethicist Stanley Hauerwas, the most effective way to get us to live virtuous lives is to have a solid identity formed by a community with a history. So as Pastor Jim often says, when you know who you are, you will know what to do. In the movie 300, the Spartan army is small and vulnerable, but they decide to keep fighting because of who they are. The leader says, Spartans never retreat. Spartans never surrender. 
In the sports movie, Remember the Titans, when the football coach wants the black and white players to be a team, he takes them to the field of Gettysburg and reminds them of their history, which motivates them to do something. These are the inspirational kind of speeches we have examples of, and that's the kind of thing we need to be doing as well. As a community, we need a story of who we are and where we've been and what practices we do together. We need a people that we belong to, which then informs who each of us is and how we live. The Bible actually gives us a clear story and community to belong to. And you're going through the Bible story here at BCF because this is the story that tells us what our history is and the story that we belong to. I think that's a really cool practice. You're discovering that even in the Old Testament, before God told people what to do in the law, he did things for them and gave them a new identity. A foundation for all the law was that God had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt and then he was now the Lord their God, and they were his people. Who he was, who they were, and what he had done before they had to do anything. Israel was supposed to repeat this story to each other at their festivals and their practices throughout the year so they never forgot what God had done from them, for them and who they were. Um, unfortunately, they forgot to repeat it, and so they forgot who they were, and so they stopped following him. In the New Testament, when the Gentiles were included in the people of God, they needed a story too. So Paul, in his letters, intentionally reminded them of the story of how God had redeemed them from a different kind of slavery, and now they were his people, and he was their God, and then told them how they should act as Christians. Um, so this is trying to dig into the scriptures today about what it means for us to be God's children in an era of identity crisis. So it's Father's Day, and I do not have, nor will I ever have, experience being a father. But I figured I do have experience being a child. <laughs> so I was going to go with that. Um, and that was uh, the first thing that you all heard about me, is that I am Steve Rasmussen's daughter. That's the most relevant thing about me to many of you. Um, not that I don't have personal friends here, but you see him a lot more than you see me. And the first thing that matters about us is also that we are children of our Heavenly Father. Unfortunately, a lot of the time when we talk about being God's children, it's a nice song that makes us feel affirmed, but it's not a substantive enough identity for us to stake our souls on. It's just become a catchphrase for Christian t-shirts or little Instagram posts, um, and we give them to teenagers who are the ones really struggling with identity, um, and it seems really dismissive sometimes. Just find your identity in Christ. Well, what does that even look like? Um, but it is essential that we root our Christian walk there. Um, so what does it really mean? And, and that's what we're going to explore today as we dig into the scriptures and look at our story um, as God's children. So first of all, as we sang about, God is our creator. Um, a father creates his children in an act of love. And this can apply to us in that God created and formed us and has loved us since our creation. So right from the beginning, we are loved by a powerful God. We are loved and secure. Some people, when they heard God was their heavenly father, had a picture of the absent father who left their mother or who was always too busy at work or who was physically present but emotionally absent um, or unavailable. Some people feel fear because when they think of their earthly father's violence or drinking or dangerous habits, 
Um, and some people feel alone and sad because they've lost their earthly father. Uh, so we need to know that our heavenly father is not the same as these earthly fathers. Um, that's why songs like You're a Good, Good Father are really important because reassurances of God's love can heal some of the wounds and repair the damage and counteract the lie that God is no better an earth, a father than our earthly one was. And I just want to begin here and read this scripture um, about God's amazing love for us. Oops, I went too far. Romans 8, 35 uh, and 37 to 39 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any power, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, of love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. We need to start there. We need to remember that we are loved and nothing can ever separate us from the love of our Father. We are loved and secure as a member of God's family. Life's circumstances cannot harm our eternal destiny. Evil cannot snatch us from God's hand. And God's loving character will never change. Another doubt that we can sometimes have about God as our Father is whether we can really trust him to provide. Um, And maybe there was uh, economic insecurity in the household that you were growing up in. Um, Or I just want to... take this metaphor a little further and say, imagine um, a child on the street who had no assurance that they'd be fed the next day. They weren't actually used to depending on a father for that. Uh, When that child is adopted, hopefully, um, she'll often steal food and hide it in her room. You hear about that a lot. Or if he had to fend for himself in the orphanage with all the bigger boys, uh, maybe he learned to lie and fight and run away. Um, and street children usually don't have that built-in attachment and security that biological kids from loving families um, already have. Or maybe the foster kids um, kept moving from house to house and have a hard time believing that this is really their forever mom or dad when they're adopted. Um, sometimes we too can act out in our Christian walk because even though we've been told we're God's children, we think it's too good to be true. Um, maybe we want to test whether God really loves us or whether he's going to kick us out if we're really bad. Um, sometimes we don't want to risk giving up our backup plans and let our guard down um, because we're not really sure whether we can trust this heavenly father to provide. And then where would we be? Um, this might also speak to people who um, advocate for their minority group. Sometimes we can feel like we have to defend ourselves all alone Um, And we aren't sure if we can trust a God who people quote to oppress our group. But God sees the injustice and the pain, and he does care. But he also sees that that is not all you are. Um, And I think God wants us, each of us, to know, really know, deep down, that he loves us and that we're safe and that he's not going anywhere. It's a risk to believe that he will provide for us and be faithful to his promises. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus assures us that this is exactly the trustworthy kind of father that God is. 
Matthew 6:26 uh, verses uh, and verses 31 to 33, as well as chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, are from the Sermon on the Mount. And they say, "Look at the birds of the air; they do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they?" So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? We can trust God. We don't have to think he's going to give us a stone. We don't need to be our own providers through our work. Um, You know, a lot of times people have an identity as being a provider. Or, or that they feel they have to work. They put their identity in their employment. Um, we don't need to be our own defenders through our advocacy. Our Heavenly Father will provide. We can trust him. We are safe. And he will give us good gifts, including his Holy Spirit. Even if he does lead us through difficult situations, he'll be with us. And we'll use them to make us more like him. He does see the big picture. He is able and he cares. Another misunderstanding we can have of God is the belief that God is an angry father who wants to smite us whenever we're naughty and disobey the rules. Maybe we grew up with a lot of guilt and shame because our earthly father was hard to please um, so that we believe that we actually have to earn God's affection too. Um, In fact, sometimes we act like we're more God's servants than his children. We talked about how we can put our identity in positions or titles or employment, and many times we believe that we have earned those identities. But that's not how it works in God's family. Imagine if you went to someone's house who had a lot of kids, and uh, you said, oh, who are you, honey? And they said, uh, you, you thought they were going to say, oh, I'm Isaac, I'm the youngest. But they're like, I'm the dishwasher. And they're like, oh, how about you? Oh, I'm the lawnmower. Like, what? <laughs> you might wash dishes and cut grass as a child, but a dishwasher and a lawnmower are machines that are there to serve the needs of the family. And the child is part of the family. We don't want to take ourselves out of being God's family and become God's servants who are just doing things for him. You're not first and foremost a pastor or an usher or whatever it is that you're doing for God. You're part of his family first. And then you do some chores. Um, Early Christians had a similar problem. Um, The churches in the region of Galatia believed that they needed to be circumcised and obey the Jewish laws in Exodus for God to accept them. So um, Paul had to tell them that they do not earn their adoption as children of God. In Galatians 4, 1-7, he says... What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of this world. 
But when the time, set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Abba's like, Daddy. Um, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Paul is saying we cannot earn sonship by doing things for God and obeying the law. We didn't earn enough money to buy our own freedom from the elemental spiritual forces of the world that we were enslaved to. We're not saved by our work, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus redeemed us from sin and from those forces. We're no longer slaves because Jesus obeyed the Father who adopted us and loved us. Not because we obeyed the Father. It was a costly gift that was freely given to us. Our identity isn't what we do for God, but in what he did for us. So we don't need to be worried about being fired from being a child of God either. We are secure. We also need to be humble enough to realize that God doesn't really need our work. God is powerful enough that he could probably save the whole world and fix everything by himself if he wanted to. But he chooses to use us, the church, as his plan A, and there is no plan B. It's not because we're experts. It's like when you ask a kid to come and help you bake a cake. Maybe you did that for Father's Day today. You'll spend half your time making sure they don't get hurt, and the other half of the time they'll be licking the spoon. You're going to do the whole thing slower, and they're really not going to be much help. But you want to spend time with them and teach them something, so you do it together. That's kind of how... God is by letting us work with him. It's not because we're earning anything, but just because he likes us and he enjoys spending time with us and he wants to show us how he does stuff. Um, So on the flip side, we've talked about how we're loved. We've talked about how we don't earn anything. And we've talked about how um, God provides for us. That's where we have to start. But sometimes we can stop there and we emphasize only God's love and we think that's all it means to be God's child. But once we are adopted and become God's children, we do need to act like it. And in um, John 5, 19, Jesus said he could do only what he saw the Father doing. And it should be the same with us. We also do need to join God where he's at work and be about our Father's business. My mom grew up on a farm. And if you're in her family, you knew about potato harvest. You know, She might not have been the one repairing the farm machinery, but she was cooking the potatoes for dinner. That's just what they did. You couldn't say, oh, that's not my thing, or I don't really do that. It was her dad's profession, and so it was the family business. You were going to eat potatoes. You were going to harvest potatoes. It was about potatoes. Now, that might not be the case with your particular job, um, but there is a family business for us as believers. If you're part of the family, you're on a mission to bring the good news to the world and proclaim that God's kingdom has come in word and in action. You can't say, oh, that's not my thing. It's part of being in the family. This is what we do. We worship, we evangelize, we pray, we give, we welcome others, we care for the poor, we work for justice, we give God glory. That's our Father's business. We also need to obey our Father. Not because we're going to earn his love, but because we are already loved, and we love him, and we want to obey him. 1 John 5 Verses 1 to 4 says, 
Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves a father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God. To keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. We obey our Father because he knows best. That's what children do. Running across the street can be deadly. If you love your child and you don't want them to be in danger, you will scold them if they run across the street. And you will teach them how to look both ways. In the same way, disobeying God is sin, and sin is deadly. But God, as a loving father, doesn't want us to experience the eternal consequences of sin. So he wants us to obey him. And if we don't, he disciplines us for our own good. So God's discipline is not the same as God's punishment. Um, And there's a a great um, verse about this. Part, Part of being God's children is actually being disciplined by God. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 says, And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. There's a good harvest of righteousness and peace from this discipline. Now, in America, people tend to be more lenient on discipline than in many other parts of the world. Um, and we have to make sure this doesn't confuse us when we think about God. Um, you know, just because God is loving doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want. Um, we sing a lot about God's love and God being our father, but I think we forget this part a lot in the U.S. Um, whereas, it, like in most of East Africa, your father is someone who you revere. Um, you would never tease him. You would obey and please him, or you would be beaten because he wants you to learn to do the right thing and to respect your elders and so on. Now, I'm not saying that parents should take this to the extremes of abuse. I'm not condoning that at all. Um, But maybe some of us just need to remember that part of God being our father means revering him and obeying him. Um, And and discipline doesn't only mean punishment either, or or, uh, you did something wrong and now I'm going to give you consequences for that. It also means training a child to be self-disciplined. We talk about spiritual disciplines. You know, these are things that train us to be more like God. Uh, and they're not punishments. They're just exercises, um, self-discipline, um, so that we do the right things and live responsibly. God is a good father who also trains us to be holy. Um, now, part of the reason why you act right um, in Africa is because you don't want to bring shame to the family name. As a Rasmussen, I have a very good family name. Um, some of you may remember my grandfather, who is on the left. Um, he preached here around October last year. And my grandpa was a pastor his whole life in the Fellowship of Christian Assemblies, which this church is part of. 
um, his funeral was in a little town in a bitterly cold northern Minnesota in Cloquet, where uh, this mission trip is going to. And it was overflowing with people from throughout the country and um, with testimonies from throughout the world of how he had touched people's lives. Um, and then my uncle, who was on the right, and um, my cousin, who was in the very back, and my other, are both missionaries, and then my dad, and my other cousin, Eric, on the back left, are pastors. So, when people hear that I'm a Rasmussen, they expect something. I have a reputation to uphold for my family, a godly legacy, but a responsibility to carry that on to the next generation. And one of God's purposes in adopting us was so that we would honor the family name, to bring praise to his name. Just notice how many times, we'll read this scripture quickly, um, but see how often this is mentioned in the passage from Ephesians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who are the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And so you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Everything that God did in that whole long section was for the praise of his glory. He adopted us for the praise of his glory. He chose us for the praise of his glory. Um, he marked us with the Holy Spirit for the praise of his glory. If we're taking the name of Christ as Christians, how are we bringing honor to that family name? How are we bringing praise and glory to God? Another part of being in a family is family resemblance. You might get my sister and I confused sometimes when we walk in here. Um, here is a picture of a white-haired tie-dye cult family. That was taken when I was five years old. <laughs> We're supposed to resemble our father so that people can tell that we are his children. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount to love our enemies because our heavenly father makes the sun rise and the rain fall on both the evil and the good. We can move on. First Peter 1, uh, 14 to 15 says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Part of why we are who we are as God's children is because of who God is. The same thing in e oops. Ephesians 4, verse 32 um, to chapter 5, verse 2. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. 
Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We do what we do because of what God has done for us, like we said earlier. But we are to be imitators of Christ. We're to follow his example. And that is one way that we show that we're his children. So if we're God's children, we need to look and act like our Heavenly Father. Another thing to remember is that I am not an only child in the family of God. I have siblings. I think that when we sing songs about you're a good, good father, I am a child of God, it's very I am God's child. But we are God's children, which means I have brothers and sisters. I can learn from my older siblings, and I need to take care of my younger siblings. Watch out for them, love them, and care for them. Here's a picture of a little girl with a younger sister on her back. If you're, um, it, when I was in Sunday school in Tanzania, we would have all ages Sunday school because the older girls had to take their younger siblings on their back and keep them entertained for the whole three-hour service. Um, that was just part of what you did as an older sister. Um, we don't take sibling responsibility that seriously in the U.S., I think. Um, but one of my friends, who was actually Indian by ancestry in Tanzania, um, she was born in Tanzania, but her sister was born in the U.S. So the younger sister had um, U.S. citizenship. And their family was short on cash, so they couldn't afford to educate everyone at the private British school where um, she, uh, their three daughters had been going. Um, so the younger sister, uh, being a U.S. citizen, could go to college in the U.S., but she would need that good British education in order to get in. So at age 12, the older sister asked her parents to send her to a lower-quality school so that her sister um, would be the one whose school fees were paid to continue on. Um, and it was lonely at the new school. She had to adjust to a whole new system. Um, but uh, an older sister is still in our little town in Tanzania working as an accountant for some little tourism company, but her younger sister ended up coming to McAllister, right here, a very good quality school. Um, and she's actually going on, I believe, to study public health at the U of M right now for her master's. Um, so as a sibling, she decided to sacrifice for her sister. Um, and that's in many cultures what older siblings um, will do. Or if you're the one who gets educated, you will get a good job, and now you will sponsor your siblings' children um, in their education. It's a very reciprocal relationship, including with your possessions. Um, many other cultures don't have Social Security or retirement plans, and I think that's even a pretty recent invention in the U.S. Um, so they have to rely on family members to support them if they're sick or financially in trouble or elderly and ailing or unemployed or mentally unwell. Um, they move in and share food and help each other out. Um, and that's also what the Bible talks about as being a family, um, being the family of God. In 1 John 3, um, verses 16 to 18, it says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. 
when we think about it in terms of family, I imagine us like little children. Um, and we've been given toys by our, our father. If we buy toys for children, the toys might be theirs, but ultimately they were free gifts from their parents. So if the parent tells them, you know, okay, share with your sibling, you know, it doesn't make sense. Oh, no, this is mine. Um, or their parent might just take it and, you know, sell it off at a rummage sale, and they have the authority to do that. Um, we, we know that when children share, you know, they're going to be happier, and I think that there are some uh, similarities with the, the possessions that God has given us as members of his family. Um, and I also find this an interesting corrective to our consumer culture. Um, we think that we're expressing our identity by what we buy and what we like, um, but John is actually saying in this passage that to affirm identity, it's more about who has loved us, who has given himself freely to us, and how we love other people by actually sharing our possessions. It's not what we buy that makes us special, but who bought us. It's not what we love that defines us, but who loves us. And then we express that love not by buying something, but actually by sharing and loving with one another. Um, another corrective to our culture of division is that in the family of God, we are united. As we know, in the all-nations family of churches, our brothers and sisters in Christ don't all look alike or all come from the same culture, but we're part of the same family. And unity isn't easy, but we do have an identity that brings us together across all these barriers. Imagine a family who has adopted children of different ethnicities, like this picture. Uh, it's an old picture of Pastor Sam's kids over at Cross Culture Community Church that he said I could share. Um, now, the older ones are people from our congregation or our sister church, but the younger ones are siblings. And they don't look alike because some of them are adopted. But when they look at each other, do they say, oh, you're white and I'm not? No, their primary thing is, you're my brother. You're my sister. That's the same that we are in God's family. Yes, those, those things still exist. You know, when you go out into the world, these two siblings are still going to experience the world differently because they're going to be treated differently by other people. But in the family, they're not treated differently. In the family, they are united. And they're mostly brother and sister. Um, not that those other things don't matter, not that they shouldn't express those cultures within the family, but um, the division isn't the focus. Um, that's also what the churches in Galatia had to realize. Going back to just before the verse we read last time, Paul told the church that it didn't matter who used to be privileged according to the law or not, but when they were all united in Christ, all of them inherit in God's family. Oops. Um, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, says Galatians three twenty six to 29. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Each one of those groups was a very privileged group according to the law. Jews... Um, freemen and males were the ones who would inherit. Um, and they were the ones who, there's even a prayer saying, you know, God, I thank God that I'm not a Gentile. I thank God that I'm not a slave. I thank God that I'm not a woman. Um, because those, 
identities were seen as lesser and they were less privileged. But Paul is saying um, in the kingdom of God, there is uh, not privilege for just one group, um, but that everyone is included in this inheritance that we have. We too are united in Christ across our demographic, united across barriers. That doesn't erase our individual identities, but it actually allows us to be more fully who we are and more whole persons. Um, you're not, other people might just see your body, just your skin or your gender or your accent or your disability, um, but you're not just the sum of your parts. You are a whole person. You are part of a greater body, which would mean missing something without you. And you would not be who you are without belonging to this family. Our unity shows in the way that we share our lives with each other. Like family, we share food together. The whole church all over the world shares uh, a meal when we take communion. We also have more local fellowship around meals like the church picnic. It also involves inviting each other to our homes, like we're talking about um, with the African Leaders Conference, sharing our cultures, belongings, time. It's great to invest in each other's children and friends, just like we're extended family. It's really important to celebrate together, too. Another thing we're good at here at BCF, we celebrate on Easter, Christmas, other church calendar events, as well as weddings and the birth of children and so forth. And as a family, we also keep in touch with others in the family who are far away, our missionaries and other Christians in other churches and around the world. So that's part of how we live out that fact that we are united. And then one other thing that I want to end with that we often forget about being God's child is that we have an inheritance. If you're someone who is tempted to find your worth and self-esteem from popularity and position, um, you don't have to search for security and titles and awards and friends because you are known by the one who matters most. You are clothed in God's righteousness, and you are a co-heir with the Most High. Um, This is a picture of the British royal family at the recent wedding, and somebody there is going to inherit the throne of England. Uh, But we have an even better inheritance of the king of kings. This passage talks more about our inheritance. Romans 8, 14 to 17. It's very similar to the Galatians passage. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Um, Just a note there, the reason it says sonship is because those are the people who would inherit in um, traditionally in Israelite culture. So, you know, the sons would get the inheritance and the daughters usually would get married, so they would have the inheritance that their husband got. Um, Unless there weren't any sons, the daughters would also inherit But in Christ, there's no male or female, as we just talked about. So it's saying that all of us are like sons. All of us get to inherit, whether we're male or female. Um, When a parent dies, they leave an inheritance. And Jesus, God's only begotten son and the firstborn of all creation, will inherit all of creation from his heavenly father. Of course, God's not going to die, but um, I guess Jesus did die. And so then he got the inheritance as a son, if you want to go that way. But... This firstborn son has chosen to share his inheritance with us as his adopted brothers and sisters. Uh, That's why this verse says we're co-heirs with Christ. We're going to share in his sufferings, but also in his glory. In verse 23, after this, it says that we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. This means that part of our inheritance is eternal life, the resurrection of our bodies. And we read in Ephesians 1 that having the fruits first, first fruits of the Holy Spirit um, is actually a deposit of our inheritance. So people here, it says, who are led by the Spirit and live Spirit-filled lives are clearly God's children because they have the deposit of the inheritance. Now, if a member of the Trinity is a deposit on our inheritance, what is that going to look like? That is going to be something. What is better than God's personal presence in our lives? In Revelation, John gets just a glimpse of it. A new heaven and a new earth. A new Jerusalem prepared as a bride for Christ. That's what we were singing about. Brilliant colors, angelic music, vibrant life, God's presence. And then John hears this. In Revelation 21, 6 to 7, he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. Could the worship team come on up? Being God's child is such an awesome privilege. It means that we are loved and secure, but he also lovingly disciplines us. He provides for us. We don't earn adoption, but he invites us to join in his work. We honor the family name as we look more and more like him. We also learn to care for our siblings and be united. And in the end, we will inherit eternal life in mansions that he has prepared for us. So we need to remind ourselves that we are God's children by repeating the story of who we are and where we come from. And that can be reading the Bible together to know the history of God's people. It can be sharing testimonies of what God has done among us and our history and vision as a congregation. We remind ourselves that we are God's children by the practices we do together as family. We share communion We eat food, we celebrate together, we share what we have, we celebrate new births in baptism, we pray to our Father, we worship and evangelize and do justice and mission to bring glory to our Father. We're family. This is the joyful news that we have to bring to a divided and polarized world. It's from 1 John 3.1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are.